All right, uh, looking at the Abrahamic covenant, you know, there's lots of different ways when you look at and study the character of God. Um, I'm uh, rereading a, a, a book by J.I. Packer, uh, Knowing God. Uh, it's had it years, but just felt led to reread it again. Foundational book on knowing God and his character. But one of the ways that we can do that, we can do it through... Uh, the study of God's attributes, you know, God's holiness, His love. I mean, there's different characteristics. But another way that we can learn about the character of God is through the study of His covenants. And if you've gone through transformation, then that certainly should be very familiar language and foundational. So we're not going to take time to necessarily uh, revisit uh, covenants and the nature of it, except just to say that a covenant in its very elementary foundational meaning is an agreement, okay? In essence, we make covenants. If you have a mortgage, you made a covenant. Uh, if you've borrowed something and, and a loan or, or, or an arrangement with another person, you've entered into a covenant. Well, the Lord, uh, in a much more greater way, entered into covenant with His people and uh, in the Bible, and there's some dispute about numbers, but just for our sake tonight, you have, uh, and again, some may would add or take away some of these, but various covenants in Scripture. Some see in Eden a covenant uh, that was made in Eden uh, between God and Adam. There, and then, or that sometimes they call it the Adamic covenant. There's the covenant with Noah. Uh, the covenant that God made, uh, especially after the flood, when he gave the rainbow as a sign that he would never bring flooding upon the earth again, and God entered into uh, that covenant. And we're going to look at the Abrahamic covenant. There's the Mosaic covenant, the covenant with Moses, Mount Sinai, the law, um, Davidic covenant. Uh, some see other aspects, certainly in the New Covenant. Jeremiah 31 talks about the New Covenant that we see fulfilled in Christ. So covenant is one of those significant terms in Scripture used uh, at least 300 or more times where it's an agreement between two parties, individuals, groups, or nations. Um, as I said, we, we are kind of familiar with uh, the essence of those agreements. But tonight, uh, I want us again just to zero in on this covenant that God had made with Abraham and look at its significance. Now, the reason that, without getting too lost in the weeds, the reason this is significant because how one approaches and interprets the Abrahamic covenant really kind of sets the tone with how other aspects throughout Scripture are interpreted, and the implications that it has, especially as it has to do with eschatology. Eschatology, eschaton, end times, the study of the second coming, and all the various aspects of the second coming uh, relating to Israel, relating to uh, the future reign of Christ. And within that, uh, there are good people on various uh, different areas of understanding concerning the interpretation of end times. And so how one understands the Abrahamic covenant 
uh, often has to do with how they look at other aspects concerning the future of uh, the return of Christ. But more specifically, it has to do with your understanding regarding the role of Israel. Does Israel, and here's really kind of in an oversimplified way, is there a future fulfillment yet to be unfolded of prophetic words concerning promises made for Israel? Is there a future still fulfillment of the role of Israel in the sense of its the kingdom of Israel and that the nations of the world that would be blessed and that the, uh, the uh, blessings of the Lord would flow out of His chosen people? Is there yet still a future aspect that would involve an expansion of not just the land geography, but a future kingdom, a future kingdom? Is it, do we take it literally when we talk about uh, Jesus ruling and reigning in Jerusalem? Is there a future return, rebuilding of the, uh, the temple? Is there, is there, uh, will Israel be restored uh, in its uh, promise, promises that God made as far as it being a blessing to the nations and it be the centerpiece that God would run and, and operate and rule and reign upon the earth? Is that to be fulfilled or... A whole other school says, no, those things are not to be taken literally. Those things are, uh, were promised, as we'll see in a little bit, to Abraham and the descendants of Israel. But because of Israel's failure, those things have now been uh, somewhat, they're, they're going to be fulfilled in the church, meaning the future believers, uh, that there's not a literal understanding of a future of Israel. There's not a literal um, uh, millennial kingdom that all those promises uh, that, uh, that were spoken of in the Old Testament, uh, those are going to be spiritually, not literally, but those are going to be spiritually fulfilled in uh, the church. Okay, So there is no future... Anything that's going on in the Middle East, Israel, any future discussion, say, about a future temple or anything regarding uh, the geopolitical nature of Israel, the fulfillment of Israel as a nation, was just, uh, they would see that somewhat as just, I don't want to use the word coincidence, that's not the right word I want to use, but they would not put any big significance. This year, May 14th, which was, what, a few weeks ago, right? Uh, May 14th, I don't know what day it is. May 14th, uh, we're still in May, right? By one day, aren't we? Yeah. Um, May 14th, uh, 1948, was when Israel was established or reestablished as a nation. That was 75 years. Those who would not see any future aspect of Israel and would not count any future prophetic promises in the Old Testament would see no significance in that. They would just say, well, that's, that's a great thing, but that has no future, that has no bearing for the future because we are not looking towards any, the, any fulfillment of those promises or those future prophecies because those things are going to be spiritually fulfilled in the church, okay? Now, that's probably uh, an inadequate overview, but I just want to kind of say that the way that you 
would look or interpret or understand the Abrahamic covenant, especially as it concerns the promises or the land promises concerning Israel will have an effect in how you understand uh, the issues concerning the second coming or what is involved in the second coming or whether Israel, those promises are future or we don't need to even worry about them or pay attention to them. Those are just for kind of the end times uh, obsessive uh, kookies uh, that, are, that are always obsessed with end times, that everything that God has done, he's already done in and through Christ, which is true, okay? Jesus is the promise of the, he's the new covenant fulfillment and the promise, but we are not looking for any future fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies concerning Israel, uh, that is irrelevant to what is established in the church today and what is future. Uh, they would look at Revelation as already been fulfilled. They would say that Revelation is fulfilled and the culmination of the book... I know I'm getting a little into the weeds a little bit, but I'm just trying to kind of give you an emphasis here on why the Abrahamic covenant and the understanding of it has some relevance. Is that the book of Revelation... Um, was fulfilled by the year 70, 70 AD. We're in 2023. So it was fulfilled when Jerusalem was destroyed by Nero and all the, the Antichrist was speaking of, the future uh, was speaking about Nero. And so everything that we read in Revelation has already taken place in the past. And they would say that we are presently now living in the millennial kingdom with Christ ruling and reigning right now. And to some respect, that is true. You maybe have heard me use this phrase when we talk about the kingdom of God, there is an already, not yet. Do we, we don't deny that Jesus is ruling and reigning right now. Are we in agreement with that? But uh, uh, even those who might differ in some of the aspects of the second coming and some of the nuances of Israel, the rapture, pre, pre mid, post, pan, whatever you want to put it, uh, would, would say, no, there are certainly things concerning the future reign of Jesus over the heavens of the earth that are certainly not yet. We're not yet in that. So, uh, so that probably confused you a lot more, but, uh, but I just wanted to kind of underscore and say that the Abrahamic covenant is foundational, and we'll kind of talk about that in a little bit here. Look with me at the promises. Again, I just tried to break this down a little bit from my notes and uh, tried to give as much without going too far into the, uh, to the weeds uh, here for uh, our sake tonight. But go look over it. Really, even though we're going to look at chapter 15, look at chapter 12 as, um, as, as we see really the beginning of this covenant that God makes with Abraham or Abram, if you will. What we find in chapter 15 is more of a re, of a affirmation, is kind of an expansion, but it really the the genesis of it or the seed of it begins in chapter twelve. And you do need your Bibles. I hope you brought those. Uh, and it says in chapter twelve, verse one. Now the Lord had said to Abram, "Get out of your country, from your kindred, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you." Now notice the the promises here. He says. Um, I will make you into a what? I will make you into a great nation. 
I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Okay, so notice all those things there. Uh, so the first thing is he promises him a, a land uh, that I'm going to take you to a land. I want you to get out of the land that you're at now, but I'm going to give you a land uh, that you're not there yet, but I'm going to give you uh, this land or this property, if you will, these borders. And from this, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to inhabit it with people that are going to be descendants from you. Now think about what God is doing. And remember, kind of go back into Genesis. Genesis, you had the first uh, two chapters of creation. You had then chapter three with sin. You had um, uh, certainly you had the first murder and with Cain and Abel. Uh, chapter five and six, you had the culmination of, of, of great sin that the Lord uh, decided in essence for our sake to kind of start all over. And, and the greatness of the sin was so great upon the earth, uh, the wickedness and the sin that God brought a great flood uh, in chapter 7. And then you had 7, 8, and 9 with Noah. And then you had from Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, Japheth, the line of the nations primarily, and this is again an oversimplification, but through the line of Japheth, those were the peoples of origins that uh, we trace maybe what we would say more in the European uh, Caucasus nations. Uh, Ham, the descendants of Noah's son Ham, uh, were more of down through the Africa and out into the Asiatic uh, nations. But from Shem is where we get the Semites, we get Jews, we get the Arabs, we get the, the Middle Eastern peoples. That's where we get the word Semite, okay? Anti-Semite is from the word Shem, through the line of Shem. So through Shem, uh, and if you uh, go back and read the table of nations, that through Shem, the son of Noah, uh, one of the descendants of Shem was the name of Terah. Who was Terah? He was the father of Abram. So notice what God is doing is that God is taking, and here in Genesis 12, God is taking a man, a single person, and remember, God hasn't forgotten or negated what prophecy He gave in Genesis 3.15. Remember in the garden where He made the curse, gave the curse to the serpent, Satan, and said that from the seed of the woman, uh, he will crush the serpent's head. Uh, and so that from this seed, which was a promise that God was going to establish a godly line, a godly seed, that ultimately we know, because we've read ahead, that he's going to bring forth Messiah as promised in Genesis 3.15. So how is God going to do that? Well, God is going to bring forth Messiah. And remember what God is doing. He is, he is not negating anything to the devil that the devil usurped and, and took uh, because of sin. God is going to reestablish, if you will, not that it ever was totally lost. I don't mean it that way. But he's going to reestablish his authority over the earth, and he's going to do that through the promise of one, not a group of people, not an idea, not a philosophy, but he says 
that there is a particular individual, there is a particular seed that would come from the woman that would destroy the works of the enemy, that would conquer what the enemy has done and vindicate that where the, you know, Paul said in Romans 5, where the first Adam failed, the second Adam, speaking of Christ, uh, was obedient to the purposes of God. So, how is God going to do that? He's going to do that, and He's going to start that. I mean, we know that ultimately there's a nation, but we're way behind back over here. There is no nation. God is just saying, God is going to choose an individual that through Him, through Him, through His line, if you will, God is going to bring forth, and if you're going to establish a nation, you need, a, you need people right? You need people to make up a nation. You need land. You need territory. Um, and so through Abram, God is going to do that. Now think about it. We, Ephesians 1 and other places speak about uh, being, the, talk about a, the doctrine of election and chosen. There's nothing that indicates anything other than God sovereignly, out of God's own good pleasure, chose Abram, a pagan, living in a pagan land, that God, by his own choice and pleasure, chose to work through and chose this man. Why didn't he choose his brother, Haran? Why didn't he choose his father, Terah? Why didn't he choose somebody else? I don't know. But God chose Abram and says, from this man and the promises that he gives... Now think about it. There's nothing that Abram brings to the table. There's only one requirement that Abram needs to do. What is that? Huh? Say it. It it sounds like a bunch with the rain. It's hard to hear. Leave his home. That was all he was told to do. Fast forward to believing the gospel. What are we told to do? Our believing doesn't establish the new covenant in Christ, does it? The new covenant in Christ and the finished work of Jesus is a done deal. But what do we need to do? We need to leave our country, if you will. We need to repent. We need to believe. That was all that Abram was required, if you will, to do. God, everything, as we'll see, everything is leveraged on Yahweh's side that he's going to do this. He says, so you need to leave your father's house. Now, we know, we talked a little bit last week, he didn't quite do that exactly, right? Uh, But yet... um, uh, we won't get into that. He, he brought along his father, and we know Lot. Uh, but uh, verse 3, he said, through Abram, uh, that through him there would be great blessing. Okay, So Abram, um, that through this man, he is going to be the unique channel of God's blessing. God's going to make him into this great nation. He says, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And in you, in your line, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, again, as you go along, you just kind of say, has that, has that been done? I would say yes and no. Okay, yes and no. We'll talk about that as we move along. So the Bible says that Abram departed as the Lord spoke to him. 
and Lot went with him. You know, Moses just kind of throws that in there like, yeah, well, we're going to see more about Lot, but we're not going to talk about Lot anymore uh, right now. But uh, uh, God chose Abram as his special uh, individual that God was going to work in and develop his purpose of redemption. Notice, secondly, regarding the covenant, that's the various promises that we see are wrapped up. Those three promises, uh, a land, a great nation, and that he would be a blessing, and those who would come against Abram or his seed would find God's wrath and would be cursed. And so secondly, it's establishment. And this is where we go now to chapter 15. Let's move over to chapter 15 uh, of Genesis, chapter 15. And in chapter 15, we see a little bit more expansion regarding the covenant of what God intends to do and a little bit more uh, specifics concerning the covenant. God promised Abram that through his descendants, he says, verse, uh, verse 1, let me just read verse 1, after these things, now remember again, this is after Abram went to uh, to rescue Lot, he went to battle, was it four or five kings? I, I don't remember exactly now, I think it was four, but it could have been five. But he fought, he had an army, he had his own private army, we learned about in chapter 14. Of course, Abram was a man of great wealth and uh, had a military uh, strategy about him. Verse 14 of chapter 14, it says they had 318 trained servants and uh, they were kind of his own special uh, militia, if you will. And uh, so uh, he rescued Lot uh, from the captivity. I don't know if they were holding him captive for money or wealth or whatever, but uh, nevertheless, Abram was successful in that. And chapter 15, this is after him um, offering tithes and uh, tribute to Melchizedek that many, and again, I want to get off into that, but chapter 15, after these things... The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid. Now, we're not sure why he would be afraid. It could be many reasons. It could be because he had just gone to war against these four or so kings and whipped them. And uh, maybe, again, retribution. That could be a fear. But I think he, he tells us what the fear is if you keep reading it. Uh, he's, the Lord says, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, that's Adonai Yahweh. And the Abram said, Adonai Yahweh, what will you give me seeing I go childless? Now, I think the promise that Abraham is thinking back when he heard the word of the Lord in chapter 12, he says, okay, you're going to make me a great nation and from my descendants, uh, the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Just one problem. You know, I have no heir. I have no physical child of my own blood. So what does he do? He kind of does what... Um, he, you know, Abram always has a good plan B. Right? I mean, when the promise of the son was delayed for so many years, he, his wife kind of suggested... Maybe you need to take matters in your own hands, lay with 
Hagar and have a child through that method because we're old, you know, I mean, uh, that wasn't God's plan, but it made sense. So Abram has a suggestion and he says, and this is very much what would happen in the case if an individual did not have a physical heir, a child. Now remember, to be barren or to not have a, a, a heir that is your physical child, especially male, was in many ways in that culture, still is to some degree today, but more so, one, it affected the inheritance issues of who would inherit the property, the land, the wealth. It also was a little bit of a shame because there was the mindset that, well, maybe, you know, maybe Abram, God is punishing you, maybe because of sin or whatever. So his fear was, I hear what you're saying, Lord, but... So what does he say? He said, Lord God, verse 2, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house as is Eleazar, Eleazar of Damascus? That was his top servant. And that was oftentimes the tradition that if there was no child or male heir born into that household, then the inheritance and the rights of authority were given over to the senior servant, if you will, okay? So that made sense. I mean, the man is what? Is he, what, 90 or something like that? I mean, huh? 70, what? 75. That's still up there, right? If you're wanting to have kids, that's all I'm saying about that, all right? But what did I see? Was it uh, uh, De Niro? Uh, how old is he? He just had a new child. Then I saw... Uh, Dust, not Dust, uh, who, the godfather, son, Pacino, he was named a dad. My goodness, these guys need to get a grip. All right. They'll be dead by the time that kid's in junior high. All right, so Abram, verse 3, said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir, Eliezer, Eliezer. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one, this is Yahweh, the Lord saying, This one, Eliezer, is not going to be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Now, think about what God is doing here. He is affirming a promise that he's made back in chapter 12. And then to kind of underscore this, Verse 5, he took him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Now verse 6 is, a, is, is the gospel in Genesis. Verse 6. And the Bible says, And Abram believed in the Lord, and he, God, imputed or it accounted to him for righteousness. Uh, that's something that uh, Paul says and connects in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. I think I might have that scripture. What does the scripture say? Abram, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Um, it's not in your notes, but Galatians 3, 6, Paul says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted or imputed to his account for righteousness. And uh, that word, uh, believed, in the Hebrew is the word that, in etymology, we get the word amen. 
Amen, amen means to affirm. It means to agree. It means to trust. It has, uh, you know, we talk about fiduciary. That speaks about a trust, that we have confidence in something. We have a confidence in this word. That's what Abraham is affirming. Not that he's just ascending to facts. See, it's the, that's oftentimes the difference in uh, real uh, conversion. There's a lot of people that believe the facts about the gospel, but they've never believed in the sense that they've, they've given personal trust into the truth of the gospel. Abraham wasn't just assenting to the facts of what God said. He certainly was doing that. But when it says that Abraham believed in Yahweh, he believed in the word of the Lord that God credited or accounted or imputed, rather, that as righteousness of what Abram did. And that's where, again, we see, we won't go into it, but certainly you see how that parallels the truthfulness of the gospel. And what we're called to do is to believe. And that we don't have any internal inward righteousness in our own selves, but our, any righteousness that we receive has to be imputed or credited to us from an outside source. God credited that belief or that act of faith. And then Moses, or <laughs> Moses, let's stick with the patriarch here, Abram. Uh, Abraham then asked God, verse 8, uh, to confirm this promise. Uh, let's read verse 7. Then he said to him, and then Yahweh said to him, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, who brought you uh, out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land. You're going to see land mentioned many, many times. And Abram said, Lord God, Adonai Yahweh, how shall I know that I will inherit it? I don't think that's necessarily Abraham expressing uh, distrust in God. I think it was just that Abram, much like what we, we just, he was just wanting some assurance, right? Do you ever need assurance? Do you ever need the Lord just to give you assurance that things are going to work? You know, God, just give me assurance. That's not saying you lack faith. He was just needing some assurance. And notice how God does this. And I'm sure... Uh, this is familiar, uh, as you all have studied covenants. Uh, and the Lord God, uh, uh, where he said, verse 8, how shall I know? And the Lord said, verse 9, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. By the way, all of those were clean animals that we would later understand that were codified in the law as clean. There's clean and unclean. Those were all clean animals. And so the Lord said, verse 10, Then Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two down the middle, and placed each piece opposite each other, but he did not cut the birds in two. Now, without getting, this is a, uh, in fact, uh, you may want to make a note there. I don't know if I put it in your notes, but, uh, oh, I don't know where I have it. Um, Jeremiah, there's a reference in Jeremiah Jeremiah 4, no, that's not it. Well, don't worry about it. But there is a reference in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 34, 18, where a similar covenant is made. Um, so this is a 
common, if you will, in this culture when a covenant would be made between two parties making an agreement. Now get this, the Lord didn't have to do this. The Lord could have just said, my word is good enough. But the Lord condescended to bring understanding to Abram. And the Lord condescended to do something that Abram, remember what did he ask for? He asked for a sign. It wouldn't be meaningful if the Lord did something that Abram didn't understand or didn't make sense. So what did the Lord do? The Lord did something by condescending, did something that was familiar to Abram in that culture. Now, in normal circumstances, only one animal would have been necessary to split the carcass. And what was the tradition is, is that both parties with the split animal carcass, aren't you glad you didn't have to do this when you bought your last car? Hey, bud, I need you to bring a goat when you pick up that Chevy. <laughs> Right? <laughs> Bring a large tarp with you, right? Uh, and what would happen, as you know, I'm sure, this isn't anything new to many of you, the animal carcass would be split, and both parties would walk in between, often, or in case, holding hands as they walk through, making covenant with each other. The implication is pretty obvious that if one of these parties break this covenantal agreement, may it be done to us what is done to this animal. All right? Now, what's interesting is, as I said, in human, in human contractual covenants that would use this particular method, uh, there's a salt covenant had to do with dipping your finger in your salt bag. and do, you know there, There's various ways that Eastern cultures made covenants. But what's interesting is that really, in the human sense, only one animal was, ne was necessary, but as though God was wanting to stack the deck of importance, what did He do? He had five. Five. I mean, you had what? You had... You had a cow, sheep, goat, pigeon, dove. You had a couple. Of, I mean, you had a lot of animals. You had a, and so it, it was to underscore, may not be anything to you and me, because that's not our culture, but to underscore in a human sense for Abram to understand. Now, here's what is significant. Look a little ahead here in chapter 15. It says, actually, let's go back up. Uh, then he brought, verse 10, he brought these, split them into peace. Now, it didn't happen right away. Because Abram had to shoo off these vultures that were coming down and thought, hey, this Abram's a really good guy. Look, he's, he's brought us dinner, and let's go down there and help our... You ever seen those nasty birds on the side of the road and, and here in the... And so he had to shoo away the animal carcasses. Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Now, most interpreters do not see that Abram 
was asleep in that sense, but it was that this was a vision versus a dream, that he was conscious, and we might would say it was a trance-like state. He was conscious because he could observe what's going on. He wasn't asleep like Adam went to, you know, God put Adam to sleep. Um, but nevertheless, don't, don't go start a church over that issue. Um, but when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Interestingly, if you look at that darkness, do you remember, and again, this has to do a little tie-in because of the significance of what's happening here in this covenant, uh, darkness uh, oftentimes is tied into covenantal judgment. I'll give you an example. You can look up the references. Remember on the last um, of the plagues in Egypt? Darkness was over Egypt and the death angel. When Jesus was crucified... Darkness and earthquakes. So you see, again, both of those covenantal uh, pictures. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he called. Then he said to Abram, "Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years." Now I want to come back to that, but what I want you to see is go to verse seventeen. And I want you to, let me just wrap this up. Verse 17, and it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there was a smoking oven and a burning torch. Again, the uh, Shekinah glory of God. Remember the pillar of smoke that uh, was that Israel or the pillar of fire that um, led Israel in the wilderness. The burning bush, the presence of the Lord. Moses saw a bush consumed with, or not consumed, but a fire that did not consume the bush. Fire, Isaiah, those fire tongs that were taken from the altar. Uh, the Lord, uh, the Bible speaks about how the Lord is uh, in Deuteronomy 4.24, that God is a consuming fire. But notice here, unlike human covenants doing this, this ritual, both parties did not walk through those carcasses. Only one did. Who walked through the who walked through? Yeah, all right, smarty pants. <laughs> Ed said three, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, God. Now what does that tell you? That's again, the implication I think is clear. This is a unconditional covenant because all of the conditions, if you will, were already met or loaded by God himself. He, in essence, is making covenant. You could say that he is actually making covenant with himself, if you will, and that he is not relying upon Abram to fulfill or meet any of these requirements. The only thing Abram was told to do was what? Get out. Get out of Dodge. God, in this dramatic 
covenantal ritual, only the fire, the very presence of Yahweh walked through these carcasses or made made covenant. Because if it was something, if God was waiting or, or looking to condition it upon Abram's obedience... We're not even in, we're in chapter 15. By the time we get to 20, he's already lying about his wife. Now fast forward to a covenant that the Lord provided. Romans 3 says that the Lord himself provided the lamb. The Lord himself provided the sacrifice. The Lord himself made covenant was the unconditional promises that were secured for us in Christ. And so here we see this covenant that's being made here. God, the two symbols, cloud, uh, the cloud, the fire, the presence of God, all the obligations of the covenant God took upon himself. And the picture is, which could not happen because God cannot die, but the implication and the seriousness is that if God were to break any of these promises in this covenant that he was making, that he would die. But we know God can die and God, would not, God is not a liar like a man, right? And so God is not for his purposes, not even for our purposes, but to do what? That in his grace and in his mercy to provide assurance to Abram, he provided... Remember, Abram said, how will I know? How will I know? He took something extremely significant that Abram's culture could understand of a covenant, binding covenant, and God made that dramatic, unconditional covenant with himself. He says in verse 7, of chapter Genesis 17, 7. You may just make a note of it. He said, I will establish my covenant between me and thee, reestablishes and thy seed. He reiterates it again in chapter 17, and in their generations for an everlasting covenant. God is making not temporary covenant, but he's making an everlasting covenant. So that has to do with... Uh, mm, That has to do with its fulfillment. Now let me just mention something here. I don't really want to spend a lot of time in it. Look at verse 7 of chapter 15. Um, And you can look it up online. But the Lord gives specific boundaries concerning this land promise. Does he not? Verse 7, then he said to him, then the Lord said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. I'm sorry, not verse 7. It actually is... um, Verse 18, I'm sorry. Uh, On the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land. Then he says, from the river of Egypt, the Nile probably, to the great river, the river of the Euphrates, the Kenites. And he gives very specific land promises. Now, what's interesting, and this again is those who would say, well, all of this has been fulfilled because they would cite a a scripture in uh, 1 Kings, and it's it's there. It's no no bait and switch. But um, 
that says that these land promises, these borders, all of that was fulfilled during the reign of Solomon. Meaning that it, we're not waiting future for, these, for this land. All of that was fulfilled during Solomon's reign. Here's the problem. Look and compare a map of what Solomon's territory was versus the land, the land borders that are given here. During Solomon's height, roughly he, uh, as king over Israel, which was the last king of the United Kingdom before it split in two, controlled maybe, and this is again, is rough numbers, 30,000 miles of territory. If you clock out the promises of the territory that are given to Abraham, you're talking about 300,000 miles of territory. Has that been fulfilled? No. Is that just there for giggles and laughs? Is that just there to say, well, you know, don't take it too seriously? Well, it must have been important because the Lord gives very specific boundaries. He gives very specific information concerning the territory. He didn't just say, I'm going to give you the whole world. He didn't just say, I'm going to give you uh, the stars and the sky. He gave very specific borders of a land promise. Now, the, why are you making a big deal of that? Because if you do not believe that that is yet to be fulfilled, and you say, oh, no, 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 all that was fulfilled back in Solomon... So we're not looking for any future fulfillment because the church is the one that really now, we in essence are the spiritual nation. We are a chosen generation. We are a royal priesthood. All of that's true. But does that negate all the promises and the prophecies that were specifically given to Israel? That's something um, you need to consider. All right, let's look at the fulfillment real quick. And the fulfillment... We want to look at how this is fulfilled in um, the, yes, right, okay, the nation of Israel. Three components, um, the land, we've been talking about the land, okay, we're going to look at how this is fulfilled in Israel, the church, uh, and uh, see how these are pictured. The land promise, there's three components, the land God promised descendants and the blessings, all right? So three components of this covenant, the land. The land promised to Abram, that was the very basis that when the exodus occurred, I'm just going to read to you Exodus 2.24, that the Israelites did not spiritualize the land promises. They didn't just say, well, I know he was talking borders and map, but... He's just talking about, you know, just the kingdom, just the kingdom. Well, the Bible says in Exodus 2.24, it says, And when God heard their groaning, remember in Exodus 2, the slavery in Egypt? And God heard their groaning, and God remembered, that's a human way, God didn't forget, but God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob, and then Moses led Abraham's descendants out of Egypt to a land of promise. You see how this started in word form, how it was started in seed form. Now you've got the Jews, 
They weren't called the Jews. They were called Jews because of the tribe of Judah. But you have a nation where? Between Abraham and Moses. Where are they? They're not in California. They're in Egypt. All right? I want a trick question. They're, they're incubating. Right? Because later, later, we find that what happened? That there arose a Pharaoh. Remember Joseph? He was the prince of Egypt. You saw the movie, right? That by Moses coming along, why did the Pharaoh want to kill all the male children? Because the population in Egypt of these, I'll say Jews, had grown so great, what did Pharaoh do? Satanically spoke anti-Semitic fear when he said, if we don't do something and to control this overpopulation, they're going to rise up, make alliances with our neighbors, and kill us. See, that's what Satan's been doing. He did it through Hitler. He's done it through generations of hatred towards the Jewish people to create fear, anti-Semitic, satanic thoughts. And so when Abram or Moses led the descendants out of Egypt, Joshua was the one that led them into the promised land. Listen to Joshua. Again, the land was taken literally. The Lord, Joshua 21, 43, and the Lord gave unto Israel all the land which he swore to give unto our fathers, and they possessed it and dwelt in it. They actually took the Lord literally in believing that there was a land promise. Now, let me go back and mention something real quick that I kind of I skipped, but I'll put it in here. Go back over to verse 12 of, of chapter 15. Remember this deep sleep? He gave him some Holy Ghost melatonin. Now, that would knock you out. You wouldn't be in a trance if you got that, right? Now, when the sun was going down, verse 12, Genesis 15, now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and a great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. What is he talking about? The Lord is saying ahead of time, your descendants are going to be in a land that they're strangers in, and they're going to be afflicted by the owners of that land. He says 400 years. Well, literally in um, Exodus, uh, it's 423. But you know, in oftentimes in Eastern uh, culture, they're, not, they're more conceptual in their numbers. You've heard me talk about this before. That when the Bible speaks about the Lord fed 5,000, I doubt that was 4,999 plus 1. It just meant a great number. Okay? So there's no discrepancy when the Lord in this word says 400 years, and it technically was 430 years. I don't know about you, but that's pretty close. I mean, that, that, don't get off and worrying about that. But so here's my point. If the Lord held to a literal precision in fulfilling that prophetic word, why do we think that other prophetic words of promise concerning Israel will not be fulfilled with literal 
precision. Why would we say that literally was fulfilled, but all these other things, well, those are going to be spiritually fulfilled, not in a literal future role of Israel, but those are all going to be just kind of wrapped up into the church, into the kingdom of God, and there's not going to be any future role for a Israel upon the earth. Do you see what I mean? We can't pick and choose. Now, again, I recognize there's a lot of nuances, but I'm just saying, as a rule of thumb, you can't pick and choose and say, this is literally fulfilled, but these things aren't literally fulfilled. Think about all the prophecies concerning the birth, the first coming of Christ. Precision, inaccuracy, where he was going to be born. I mean, et cetera, et cetera. How about his crucifixion? Even down to the gambling of his loins. Hundreds of years. God has a way of putting terminology to mean what he intends it to mean in Scripture. That's just my... So, for example, the land, even though there was a time... And after uh, the Babylonians came and took the people of Israel into captivity, it wasn't, again, I don't have the exact years, but it was a short time that we read, of course, with Ezra and Nehemiah. Guess what? They went back to the land to rebuild. Because of what? Based upon what? Based upon the prophetic covenantal promises given to them by God through Abraham. That's why they went back. Nehemiah uh, 9.8 speaks about that they returned because of what God said to Abraham. They took this stuff literally. They really believed it. Now again, if you know the, pat, the story, maybe make a note of it. The Valley of Dry Bones, Ezekiel 37, 1-10, where it's this valley of dead, dry, just bones, no flesh. And this miracle takes place where all of a sudden the bones start to rattle. Flesh starts to come up on these bones. And that which was once dead comes alive. Many would interpret that and believe that that was fulfilled on May 14th, not literally May 14th, but in 1948, when a nation that was dead, do you realize Hebrew was considered a dead language? The idea of Israel having a seat at the United Nations would have been prior to the 19, especially 1948, but especially before 1945 on. Before all that, the idea of Israel having any kind of national semblance of a government or a nation would have been about as crazy as saying the Hittites are going to have a seat at the UN and the Zebusites are going to have a seat at the UN. It was dead. That's the reason sometimes when you read commentaries that were written before 1948, they will spiritualize Israel into the church because they had no concept of seeing the literal fulfillment of the nation of Israel. I believe that Israel is significant. I believe it is still significant. Now, how all the little lateral interplay, you know what? I, I, I don't understand everything, but I at least believe that what God told Abraham was to be taken literally. Read Zechariah chapters 10 through 14 and see how it's very specifically in talking about Israel and how the, how the Messiah would come and 
put his feet at the Mount of Olives and how the nation of Israel would be restored. What about in the church? Does the church have no role? No. Without Jesus, without the coming of Christ, a huge component of the promise of Abraham could not be fulfilled. So when he talked about through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed, who came through Israel, who came through Abraham, but the Messiah. Ultimately, he is the one who would be the blessing. Not some geopolitical empire, but through Christ and his rule and his reign would be the blessing of the nations. Remember what Mary said in Luke Chapter 1, I'm not sure if I have this in your notes. This is B under the church. When Mary learned that she would bear the Messiah, she praised God for giving help to His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Zacharias the priest, the father of John the Baptist, likewise connected Jesus' birth to the Abrahamic promises when he said in Luke 1, 72 and 73, the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. Paul would pick up on this idea. I think this is in your notes. Are these in your notes? Did I include these? The apostle Paul confirmed that Jesus came to fulfill the Abrahamic promise and when he writes in Romans 15, um, not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, he says, now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision, that's the Jews, the circumcision, for the truth of God. Remember it says he came to the Jew, it was unto the Jew first, came unto his own. The promises of God are given through the Jewish people. Uh, he came to minister to the circumcision of the truth of God, to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, that's Abraham, and that the Gentiles, non-Jews, would be glorified to glorify God in His mercy. That's the reason in Acts 15, you remember the dispute about Gentiles coming to faith in Christ? And the big brouhaha was... Do they need to be circumcised before they become Christians? In other words, do they need to come under the law before we receive them as Christian brothers? That was the dispute, Acts 15. And it's interesting that as you read it, I think it's James, could be Peter, cites the word and the prophecy about the Gentiles being brought in and that this was fulfillment of God's promises that he gave to Abraham. Remember, when he gave these things to Abraham, there was no Israel. There was no law. There was no Moses. This is all pre-all of that. It wasn't exclusive, even though God was going to work for a time exclusively through a line of people and a nation. Now, all those promises, and again, you can read those of how Christians are, Paul talks about that we are grafted in. We are the wild branch. Remember he talks about that we're grafted in now to the true vine, right? We're not, we're not heirs in our own right, but we have been brought in to be part of now 
this one, this one line to be believers, that we are, he says in Galatians 3.29, that we Gentiles, non-Jews, are Abraham's seed, not by natural descendants, but because through who? Through Christ. Okay? So I'm not saying in any way that the church or Christians, we do not receive the blessings of Abraham. No, we're brought in on all that, that we are all part of that covenant. But here's the rub. Here's the difference. The church is never promised the land. That must mean, in my view, that there is a distinction still made, not in the sense of one is more than the other, but there must be, in my view, to understand properly Scripture, there must be a rightful distinction between Israel and the church. Right now, we are what? Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. We are now one in Christ Jesus, right? And we won't take time to read, but read Romans 11, where Paul says, does that mean God has given up on the Jews? He says, God forbid. No way. But he says something interesting. I'm going to close on this. Look over to Romans 11. Look at Romans 11, 11. Actually, verse 1. Paul says, I say then, has God cast away his people? I.e., we would say, does that mean there's no purposeful relevancy? The Jews now just are composed of the church there's no identity to the eternal purposes of God regarding Israel, the Jews, that it's just all... He says what? He says they have not been cast aside. He said, for I am an Israelite of the what? Seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Verse 2. God has not cast away His people whom He foreknew. Now look over to verse 11. I say then... Let's see, yes. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Now clearly Paul in the Scripture that Israel has been temporarily removed to receive the blessings because why? Remember when Jesus looked out at Jerusalem and wept over Jerusalem and said how I would have liked to have taken you like a chick under her wings or a hen under, I forget the bird, but the hen under her wings, meaning if you had only known the time of your visitation, Israel as a nation did what? Rejected. He came unto his own, and his own what? Received him not. All right, guys, that's it. Done. No, 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 no. That's not what Paul's saying here. He said, no, God can't do that. Why? God made covenant with himself. Did he not make a covenant back in, in chapter 15? Did he not swear to his own being that he would do these things? And it wasn't conditioned whether Israel behaved themselves or not. They didn't behave themselves for centuries or years. But his covenant was binding. Notice what he says, verse 11, and I will close. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy... 
Salvation has come to the Gentiles. In other words, God has, is dealing with them in, in an essence of judgment in bringing the gospel now to the Gentiles, but that is not removing the Jews or Israel from their promises. Notice he says, verse 12, Now if their fall is riches for the world, what does it do? It's to provoke them. To, hey, we want that. We want that Messiah. We want that blessing. Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. They can get in on the Gentiles' fullness of the blessings of Messiah. He says, I speak to you, Gentiles. I'm an apostle of the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke my people to jealousy, those who are in the flesh to save some. There's a scripture I was trying to find that... Um, okay, verse 25. This will be it. That's what I was looking for. Sometimes you just read till you find your verse, right? Let me close with this. For I do not desire... Remember what he just said. They're not going to be cast away. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. That's what people would see as the role of the church. It was mystery. It just it doesn't mean it's an Agatha Christie mystery. It just means that the church was not foretold in the Old Testament. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that hardening in part, in part, not permanency, do you see that? Has happened to Israel. There's a hardening. They've rejected Messiah. Doesn't mean Jews still aren't coming to Christ, Jews for Jesus, chosen people. It doesn't mean that. It just means collectively, as God's vehicle of what he's doing, there is a temporary hardening in part that has happened to Israel. See that word until? Does your Bible have until? I would circle that because that's a time word. That's a time word. We will do this until 8 o'clock. We're not going to do it until 8 o'clock. We will do this until the flower blooms. Until is a time measurement. So what is he saying? This present separation has happened to Israel. If they were just being grafted into the church, none of this language would make any sense. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come, and so... All Israel will be what? Now that doesn't mean every Jew that's ever lived is going to be saved. It's speaking, if you go back, it's speaking about where he begins the chapter and talking, or the chapter before, he talks about the remnant of Israel. He's talking about believing, those who believe and receive Messiah. Why is the Abrahamic covenant important? Well, I believe because the implications that you need to consider when you read it and ask yourself, have these things all been fulfilled in the church? We're not looking for any future fulfillment. Or is there still yet to be future promises or promises that are yet to be fulfilled future that are not yet? And therefore, it will affect the way you look at in times, Revelation, the second coming, it will affect maybe the way you look at the rapture, whether you look at it before, middle, during, lots of, lots of pieces there. All right. 
we try to do the best and understand the best we can. Be a Berean, be a student, always be reading, always be studying. Approach all these things humbly, right? 